Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church podcast, where we share weekly sermons from our church services. We're so glad you've decided to join us today. We are a multi-generational family church located in the heart of Little Rock. Calvary's mission is to glorify God by making disciples who make disciples. Whether you've long been part of our church family or are tuning in for the first time, we hope our podcast provides the same kind of welcoming space you'd find here on Sunday mornings. Most of all, we hope this space helps you engage God's Word and grow in your faith. Well, today we're going to be continuing our study of the Gospel of John. And if you were with us last week, we looked at a, a pretty amazing story, a surprising story, where Jesus cleanses the temple. He takes authority over the temple. And you might remember if you were here, you know that uh, that was a time where he runs out the money changers and the merchants who had set up shop in the temple courtyard, specifically the court of Gentiles. And we see really a Jesus that we're not used to seeing, an angry Jesus. And last week I talked about that event and I feel like it was, um, it was basically an event where Jesus was angry at the religious leaders and their corruption. For they were the ones who authorized the merchants and the money changers to take up shop in the temple courtyards itself. And we see throughout the Gospels, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four talk about this antagonism between the religious leaders, particularly the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, but it would have included the Sadducees and the priests as well, this antagonism between them and Jesus. We know that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the religious leaders did not believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah. It could, he could not possibly be the Messiah, they thought, because he did not meet up uh, their expectations. And they also did not believe, certainly, that he was the Son of God. For them, that would have been blasphemous to say such a thing. And they thought it was so in his case. And they were constantly trying to discredit Jesus to his face, but also to the people. Well, in turn, Jesus did not take their criticism and their statements sitting down. He told them the truth. And in places uh, in the Gospels, really all of them, you can find these type of things. But specifically in Matthew 23, we have Jesus giving seven woes or rebukes to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And this is where he says things like, you guys are just a bunch of blind guides, blind spiritual guides. It's like the blind is leading the blind. He says, you are whitewashed tombs, all cleaned up on the outside, but inwardly you're dead. You're spiritually dead. He said, you are a brood of vipers. You are a family of poisonous snakes, and you're spewing out your poisonous venom with your religiosity, and it's killing people. And he says, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. You do not practice what you preach. And so we see Jesus also 
encountering, encountering the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And then we have that incredible story of the cleansing of the temple, which I said last week is uh, probably the, the one thing that Jesus, more than anything he said or did that sent him to the cross, that got him killed. And of course, we know that was all part of God's sovereign plan. So that's the end of John chapter 2, the cleansing of the temple. And so when we today, if we turn the page from John chapter 2 to John chapter 3, lo and behold, we have another unexpected story. Who shows up at Jesus' doorstep late at night? wanting to have a conversation, an encounter with Jesus, but a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. His name was Nicodemus. We'll call him Nick at night (laughs) because he showed up under the cover of darkness. Why? Because he did not want his fellow Pharisees to know anything about this, that he was having this conversation, this encounter with Jesus. We might even call him Sneaking Nick, if you will. And so this is something that's very, very surprising. If you want to follow the story, it'll be in the early parts of John chapter 3. I'm not going to read all the scriptures. I'll just kind of tell you the story. But he shows up, and I think very sincerely, he gives Jesus a compliment and says, we know that you are from God because a person cannot do the things you're doing unless they were from God meaning all the miraculous signs. Now that means that Nick was not buying what his fellow Pharisees were saying about Jesus. They were saying that he was actually getting his power. It was undeniable that he had this supernatural power, but they were saying he was getting it from the dark side, from the evil one, from Satan himself. Nick is saying, I think quite sincerely saying, we know that's not true, or I know that's not true. I'm not sure who the we are in this, but probably some of us know that's not true. We know that you are from God, and so in his mind, he probably thought in some way, somehow, Jesus was a prophet, a prophet of God. But he couldn't reconcile everything that he was seeing and all of the controversy and all of the statements. He was, he was wanting to figure it out. And so he went to Jesus late at night to have a sincere conversation about spiritual things. Well, Jesus cuts right to the chase. And he basically tells Nicodemus, listen, I'm telling you, you cannot, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nick, you have to have a rebirth to experience the kingdom of God. Now, this was going to be news to a Pharisee like Nicodemus. He thought because he was an Israelite, he automatically was going to experience the kingdom of God. And because he was a religious teacher, a prominent Pharisee, and by the way, Nicodemus was not just any old Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. That was uh, kind of the supreme court in their world. A very powerful man, a leading teacher of the law, a leader among the Pharisees. So he would have thought, man, I'm going to have a front row seat in the kingdom of God, a position of authority and power because of who I am and what I stood for and represent. 
And Jesus is saying, no, Nick, you're gonna, you, you've got to be born again or you won't even experience the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is confused. How in the world can somebody be born again? They can't re-enter their mother's womb and be born a second time. And Jesus then begins to have a spiritual conversation, says, Nick, it's not about the physical world. It's about the spiritual world. You've got to be born again in the spirit. And the spirit is really like the wind, he says. And that's really a play on words. The Greek word spirit is pneuma, which sometimes is even translated as wind. And it's always associated with wind. Remember when the Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2, we're told that it was like a, they heard a, like a mighty wind, and then the Spirit came upon the people. And so he's saying it's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can feel the wind. You can experience the wind, and absolutely the wind is real. It's not the physical world we're talking about, not a physical rebirth. We're talking about a spiritual rebirth. It's something that happens through the Spirit. And Nick, you ought to know this. You're a teacher of the fair, you're a teacher of the law. How can you not know this? We're talking about spiritual things. This is spirituality 101. And you don't even know this, Nick. And so they have a conversation about this. And he says, listen, I'm talking about heavenly things. I'm talking about spiritual things. And the only way you're going to fully understand spiritual things is if somebody, if you listen to somebody who's come from heaven. And guess what? The Son of Man has come straight from heaven. Meaning, I am the Son of Man. I've come from heaven to give you these heavenly truths, Nicodemus. You need to listen. And he says, basically, he tells them a story. You remember the story, Nicodemus, in, in um, Numbers chapters 21, where the, the people had rebelled, the Israelites had rebelled against God and Moses in the desert. And in response, God sent poisonous snakes. And many of the people were bitten by those poisonous snakes and were dying. And so God instructed Moses to take a bronze snake, to make a bronze snake, put it on a tall pole and put it up high. And the people who were no doubt sick and dying could look at that bronze snake high and lift it up and they would be healed just by their active faith of looking at that bronze snake. And he says to him, he says, listen, the son of man, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. No doubt Jesus was talking. He was giving some foreshadowing to Nicodemus about this event that's known as the crucifixion, the cross high on the hill of Golgotha, lifted up. Jesus was going to be high and lifted up and that when we look at him, we can be healed from our spiritual sickness, the disease of sin. We've got to look at Jesus. And that whole event, the crucifixion, we know was how Jesus bought us back. He paid our price, the price of sin, so that we could have a relationship with God that leads to eternal life in him, through him. And so 
Jesus is explaining this very important spiritual truth to Nicodemus. This was really rocking his world. This was completely counter to Nicodemus' spiritual worldview. You know, as we think about this, we know the Pharisees focused on the law. They called themselves the guardians of the law. And when we talk about the law, we're talking about the Old Testament. And there were 630 different laws in the Old Testament. And the Pharisees took each and every one of those 630 laws and they built a fence around it. That's what they called it. We're going to build a fence around the law so that we can perfectly keep the law and help others to perfectly keep the law. And so what that meant was they would, they would take a law like the Sabbath, honor the Sabbath, keep it holy. And they would say, okay, what do we need to do to make sure we keep that law? And they would build these rules, what you could do on the Sabbath and what you could not do. And they had these traditions, their rules that they kept for each and every one of the laws. Eventually, they wrote those rules down in a Jewish rabbinical source called the Talmud. And uh, guess how many laws they came up with for the Sabbath, the rules to keeping the Sabbath? Well, if you go read the Talmud, I can't give you a specific number, but they had 24, not rules on keeping the Sabbath, but 24 chapters full of rules on how to keep the Sabbath. That's just one of 630 laws. This is how the Pharisees approached religion. It was about the rules. And if you keep the rules, you're going to be good with God. But listen, Jesus took them on even with this. He said, you think you've even kept the rules? Well, let's take one of the rules. You shall not commit murder. You've heard that. You think you've built the law, the fence around that rule. You think you've kept it perfectly. But in reality, if you've had anger in your heart, you've broken that law. And he knew they all had anger in their hearts because they were looking at him with angry eyes and angry hearts. You haven't kept the rules, he told the Pharisees over and over and over again because it's not about the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. And so this was rocking somebody like Nicodemus. All of this would have rocked his worldview. They thought they would be in right standing with God by keeping the rules the religious rules and the religious traditions. In fact, one of the things Jesus absolutely hated about the Pharisees' religiosity is that all of these oral traditions that eventually were written down, all of these rules became as sacred as the law itself. And Jesus was basically saying, this will not get you into the kingdom of God, Nicodemus. You need to be born again. You need to have a spiritual rebirth. You need to have a redemption. And the law is not going to get you there. You must be born again. Well, as we continue the story, right after this conversation, we have this most famous verse in all the Bible, a verse that Beckett read for us earlier, John 3.16. And as Jordan said, probably many of you, many of us could have recited that verse by memory. It may be the most popular verse in all the Bible, certainly for those of us who would be from the evangelical tradition, like Baptist 
heritage. We are part of this. We believe this is a critical verse for how a person can have an eternal relationship with a holy God. John 3, 16. Now what's interesting as we look at our scriptures in the NIV translation, which I use and often use, uh, this verse is not in red letters. You've noticed that maybe some of you. You know, the red letters are what the translators believe were the words of Jesus himself. So they believe that, that after this conversation with Nicodemus, that John now kind of summarizes the theological theme. It's John, the narrator, that's coming back and telling us this verse. But other translations, in fact, almost all of the other ones, all of the major ones, the King James, the New King James, the English Standard Version, the Christian Holman Bible, the New American Standard, all of these other translations put it in red. That just means the translators believe Jesus actually said these words himself. And of course, it's the word of God, whether Jesus said it or John said it. But there is something kind of special and unique and powerful if they come from Jesus himself, as most translators believe. Look what he says, John 3, 16. Let's just read it one more time. It says, for God so loved the world. This is what he said right after this conversation with Nicodemus, or maybe part of it, the conclusion to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is a powerful theological, spiritual statement that we must know, we must understand. Let's just break it down for just a moment. There's four key things that I think we need to understand about this. It's talking about a gift that has been given, right? God so loved the world that he gave. He gave a gift, an extraordinary gift, and the gift was motivated by God's love. God in heaven is looking down at this fallen, broken, sin-filled, sinful world that's under the control of the evil one and is lost because of sin, desperately sick and dying because of sin. And so in his love, his motivation of love, he sends us a gift. And the next part of this is the gift was Jesus himself, the one and only son. That was God's gift. Jesus was and is the gift. And then it says that the gift has to be opened or received. How does a person open this gift? It's through belief or faith. And when the Bible is talking about belief, it's not just talking about believing a bunch of facts. That's part of it intellectual assent to know that Jesus was the Son of God, that he did come to this earth. He lived as a fully God and fully man. He lived the perfect life among us. Then he dies a sacrificial death for us, and after three days, he rose from the dead. Those are facts that are critically important to understand and believe. But when the Bible talks about belief, it's more than that. It's a life-committing belief. It's a receiving of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that includes things like Jesus said, if you want to be my follower, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. That's more than just 
believing some facts. It's a heart commitment. That's what it means when he says believe. But that's how we open the gift, by this heart committing belief in Jesus called faith. And then the last thing it says on this that I'd like to say is that the gift results in eternal life rather than eternal death. When it talks about perishing, it's talking about eternal separation from a holy God, which is what will happen if we die in our sins. And so this is a way to have our sins paid for by the blood of Christ. He took the punishment we deserve, the separation that we deserve, and he has now healed us and made a way for us to have our relationship with the holy God restored. It's through faith and belief in him receiving this gift. And it's a gift that requires a decision. Look at it says in John 3 verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He wants to save us, not condemn us. He wants to redeem us, not condemn us. He wants to give us life, not death. But look what happens. There is a choice that has to be made. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. If you put your faith in him, you will not be condemned. Your sins will be forgiven. You will be saved. You will have a spiritual rebirth. You will be born again. But if not, look what it says, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. No matter how good you are, you are not good enough. You could never be good enough. That's a lie that's sending a lot of people to hell. They think that in the end, it's just whether, it, my, in the end, God's going to weigh my goodness versus my badness. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I'm in. If not, I'm out. And surprisingly, everybody is in, right? We're all good enough, right? We're good people. That's not how it works. The default to this is, is death, separation, Eternal life away from him, condemned by him. There is a place called real, uh, called hell, and it's real. And it's real bad. We need to understand that. And so there is a choice you have to make. And if you just put it in default mode and let, th uh, in mode and let things kind of play out, that'll send you to hell. You have to choose to believe. Choose to put your faith in him. And we need to understand that's a life-committing belief. But when we do that, everything changes. We go from being dead in our sins to being alive in Christ. We, we go from being children of the devil to be children of God. We go from being in bondage to our sin to being free in Christ. And so many other things change. This is a complete and total game changer. It's amazing what happens when we make this choice, profound implications for each of our lives. And we need to fully understand that and make sure that our family and our friends and our neighbors, our work associates understand this. It is truly a matter of life and death. There's some kind of key points that I'd like for us to kind of wrap up here as we think about this. One of these is that there is a radical difference between religion and regeneration. The Pharisees were religious people. 
very, very religious, but they were not born again. Nicodemus had to understand he was going to miss out on the kingdom of God in part because of the deception of his religion. And he had to be regenerated. He had to be born again. And we also see this, this other point would be re, that's related is religion is often about rules and rituals. That's what the Pharisees were all about, rules and rituals, whereas regeneration is about a relationship with God. And that's what Jesus was basically telling him. You've got to have a relationship with me, the Son of God, your Savior, who will give you life and all the good things, but you've got to believe in me, Nick. You've got to change. You've got to make a decision that'll lead to regeneration. Many years ago, when um, way, way back in the world, when I was in high school, I had a real good friend, his name was Kevin, uh, I said a good friend. We had become friends actually in elementary school. We go way back. And Kevin was a year older than me, but I met Kevin uh, when I was training for the uh, citywide, the school district-wide track meet at the end of the year, each year. And uh, Kevin, a year older and wiser, of course, was coaching me on my running and my training. And lo and behold, Kevin actually became a coach and a teacher, and is that today, and a good one. And so he was coaching me up, and we became friends. He was kind of like that, that big brother type guy in my life back in the sixth grade. And when I was in the fifth grade, he was in the sixth grade. Well, as things go on in my school, we had a big school district. So if you weren't in the same grade, you didn't have a lot of interaction. But we competed against each other in Little League Baseball and things like that. But we get to high school, and... Uh, we end up playing on the junior varsity baseball team together. Kevin's a junior, I'm a sophomore. And it was late in the season, and for some reason, our coach did not have the wisdom and the wherewithal to start his two best players. <laughs> and Kevin and I find ourselves riding the bench, riding the pine, as you used to call it. And somehow, some way, we begin to have a conversation we were frustrated, of course, we're not playing, but we still were kind of the type of people that would keep our heads in the game. But for some reason, we start talking about God and about religion. And I find out, Kevin says, yeah, I said, it's all about, you know, I got baptized as a baby and I'm, I got to go to church and I got to, you know, I go to communion and I go through the rituals. It's important. And I got to be a good person say my confessions, and so forth. That was his religious tradition. And then in this conversation, I'm thinking, man, I don't think Kevin has a relationship with God. And so I start talking to him about, it's about a relationship with God. And Kevin kept kind of debating and saying, no, 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 no. And so in the end, I said, look, Kevin, this is what you got to do. You got to go to FCA camp with us. And I always happened to be the president of my high school's Fellowship of Christian Athletes huddle. And we were going to Black Mountain, North Carolina, to FCA camp, and I'd been before, and I just knew if Kevin could experience that, he would understand what I was talking about. And so Kevin said, well, Scotty, I'll think about it. And I knew Kevin was the type that would think about it. And a few weeks later, we got back together, and he said, you know what, Scotty, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to FCA camp with you. 
And so we did. We get up there, and it's just a wonderful time. They put you in different huddles. You're all spread out. But you have these morning worship times with inspirational speakers. They give you an FCA Bible. They teach you how to have a quiet time, a devotional. You have one every morning. And they have these Bible studies and competitions. Athletes love that. And then these inspirational worship services and speakers. It was all there. And I wasn't with Kevin a lot of that time, but I was watching him, and I, I could see he was starting to get it starting to buy in. Well, it's the last night of FCA camp. We're going to leave the next day. Late before we go to bed, Kevin comes to my dorm room and says, Scotty, we're getting up at five o'clock in the morning and we're going to climb Black Mountain and we're going to take our Bibles. And we're going to have our devotionals on top of Black Mountain. I said, Kevin, this must be the spirit. I don't know about this. Five o'clock in the morning. You're kidding. I said, but if you show up, I'll go. If you knock on my door at five, I'll get up and we'll go. And sure enough, Kevin knocks on my door. We get up, we go out. We're going to climb the trail to Black Mountain. It's pitch black. We couldn't even see the trail. And we finally have to stop because we end up in the woods warming. And we have to wait till the light just barely starts coming down. And then we had about a 30-minute hike. We get up to Black Mountain to watch the sunrise, and it's cloudy. But we separate. Kevin has his quiet time. I have my quiet time. Afterwards, Kevin comes back and he said, Scotty, I'm in the club. I said, what do you mean? He said, I made the decision. I'm a follower of Christ. Kevin sent me some pictures not too long ago. He took on Black Mountain. I had hair back then. What a glorious moment. And he's, he's a wonderful follower of Jesus, a brother in Christ now, not just my big brother helping me out with track meet, but he's my brother in Christ and has followed the Lord. He's a wonderful man of God. It's about a relationship. And when we get that, we get everything. Well, did Nicodemus ever get it? The Bible doesn't actually say. We do have a couple of hints, though. I'd like for us just to close with this. In John chapter 7, verse 50, it says this. Nicodemus, who'd gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, meaning a Pharisee, said, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? This is when they had kind of the kangaroo court trial for Jesus. He knew it was a setup. And he spoke up. And their response was, are you a Galilean too? I mean, are you one of them? So that's a hint. A second and even more prevalent hint comes in John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 38 and following, it says, this is after Jesus' death on the cross. It says, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away, and he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, taking Jesus' body. The two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen, this was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. 
that is an enormous amount of spices. That is the equivalent of what you would bury a king with. Nicodemus knew he was the king. And he honored him as king. And even surprisingly, in that same Talmud that keeps up with the history, there's actually a story about a first century Pharisee named Nicodemus Ben-Gorion, who was a wealthy first century Pharisee, a member of the ruling council, who at the end of his life lost his status and his wealth. If he had become a believer, that's exactly what would have happened. He would have lost his status and lost his earthly wealth. But oh, he was so rich in Christ. If you're here today and you've not made this decision, today could be, would be, should be your day of salvation. It's not a hard decision to make, but it has profound implications. You make it with a heartfelt prayer, just confessing that you believe in him, you know you're a sinner, your sin has separated you from him, and you want to receive this gift in faith, life commitment to him. You can make that in a simple prayer that will change your life forever, just like it did Kevin's life and my life and so many of you here. If you've not made that decision, you can make it right here, right now. And today we're going to do something a little different. We're going to have an opportunity for you actually to come forward. You don't have to come forward to make this decision. You can make it right where you're at. But if you do, you need to let us know. We need to walk alongside you with next steps. But you can come forward. There's a, a Baptist tradition of coming forward and letting me pray with you and then letting the church come alongside you and know about this decision. If you'd like to do that today, if you've not made your decision for Christ, today can be, could be, would be your day of salvation if you make that decision now. This is your time. Let's stand and let's sing. And you respond as the Lord leads. Thank you for listening to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. If you don't already have a church home, We invite you to join us in person each Sunday morning. Our contemporary worship service is at 9 a.m. and our traditional service is at 11.15. For more information, be sure to check out our website, cbclr.org.